right, Docs, let's face it, time to get real. You tune into Docs Outside the Box because you wanna know how to take control of your career, right? Well, look, my new sponsor, Provider Solutions and Development, they have a team of experts ready to guide Docs just like you through today's job landscape. Now, whether you are looking to dive deeper into your specialty or you wanna find a healthier work-life balance, they can help find the right fit for you. So I want you right now to start the conversation with a PSND career coach at psdrecruit.org forward slash docs outside the box. This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs. One of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. So what's good, everyone? This is Dr. Neo. And this is Dr. Ty. What up, doe? What up, doe? <laughs> so this is the first time we've had some technical difficulties, but... I'm really excited because this is the first time that I've had a guest come and record in my podcast studio. So, Dr. Ty, my bad. Oh, excuse me. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. No, it's all good. I'm happy to be here. For real, for real. So, you know, we got a lot to talk to. We got a lot that we got to get through. And we've known each other, what, since, what, 2004, 2005? Yeah, a long ass time. (laughs) (laughs) A long ass time. And we recorded back in early October, but I just released the episode. When we're yep. talking about D.O. Lives Matter. That one was D.O. about, <laughs> that one literally <laughs> was a play on words, but basically we were focusing on, you know, Dr. Sean Conley. And, you know, obviously there was some major issues that the media had with him. And yeah. we just kind of felt like they took it out on the osteopathic physician world. As and I mean, to it was shady. It was real shady. The thing is, is that my medical degree is no different from an MD's medical degree. And I mean, I respect my MD brothers and sisters that are out there, but you know, we did additional 400 hours of manual medicine work in osteopathic manipulative medicine. Speak on it. So I'm just trying to say, you know, I paid a lot of money for that degree. I worked hard for that degree and you're going to respect my degree. Put some respect (laughs) on my degree. You know what I mean? That's why you here, man. (laughs) That's why you here. So for y'all who don't know, Dr. Tyree Winters is from Detroit. Born and raised, which is why we say what up, though. So what up, though? What is the background of what up, though? Tell me about that. So, I mean, it's just the way that we greet each other. You know, when we see everybody back home in Detroit, it's just like, what up, though? Just for the vernacular, for those who may not understand this type of language. I mean, it's the same. How are you doing? How is everything going? So just like here in New York, we say, what up, son? How you doing? Yeah. What's going on, B? You say, what up, though? Though. Got you. And then Philly has John. John, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't, these cats on the East Coast, you know, y'all cool or whatever, but I'm just saying, like, don't sleep on us, you know, the Midwest and us to be the Dirty D, Chi-Town, you know, Cleveland. But you can't okay. come, wait, wait. See, that's the thing, though. See, in New York here, like, if you're from New York, you don't claim Jersey or you don't claim Connecticut. I know. So why y'all do that? We don't claim, I mean, it's not like we're saying we claim Chicago, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> you know, it's like your cousin, you know what I mean? It's just like, you're going to say what up to your cousin, you know what I mean? It's like, I find that people sleep on Jersey. When I moved out here. Oh, yeah, everybody sleeps on Jersey. Everybody was just always hating on Jersey. And I moved to Jersey, and I was like, Jersey ain't that bad, actually. Jersey is dope. It's expensive. It is. 
it's dope to me. I mean, I appreciate living out in Jersey. There are some stupid things to happen in Jersey, but there are stupid things that happen all over the world in terms of just like, you know, the taxes here are utterly freaking ridiculous. Like, I don't see the reason why taxes need to be that high. It makes me almost Republican. <laughs> <laughs> well, since this episode is coming after. <laughs> after the election, I voted for Biden-Harris. So this is crazy, actually. Let's talk about it then, because yeah. like, we're recording this on Sunday, November 1st. So we are two days away from the actual election. And for what we've been saying on the show is just go out and vote. Like, we don't care who you vote, vote. for. Go out and vote. Give your patients an opportunity. I to care who vote. you vote for. That's fine. I do. That's fine. Go ahead and say what you're saying. So like when this episode comes out, things are going to change. Like we're either going to find out. And I'm keeping it positive. I'm keeping it 100 positive. I really feel that this country has seen enough heartache and pain when it comes to this presidency. And the thing that I always tell everybody, and, and I stick by this 100 percent, which is I do believe things are ordained. And I do believe that, you know, once a leader is elected, you follow along with that leader. However, I also believe, too, we were given will to be able to elect our leaders and to be able to speak against our leaders, especially if they're doing things that are not right. Same thing like with George W. Bush when he wound up having when 9-11 happened, you know, it was one of those things where, yes, you can criticize him about a lot of different things. But at the same time, the country needs to come together. He's the leader at that time. You know, you stick with him. But in the case of COVID, which have seen way more deaths than happened in 9-11, I'm not saying that 9-11 is not something that was tragic or something that obviously has affected so much of our life here it's in like America. It's like 60 times more. Yeah. But I mean, like you look at COVID and you look at the fact that the people who have suffered so much. By the way, we took negative COVID tests before we did That's this. true. Yep. We did take Just negative so COVID know. tests before we did this. So if you see us on video, you can see the distance between us. But literally, we did tests and we both came out negative. So that's why we're doing this here. So we're yeah. not playing. So, you know, what's interesting is you mentioned marginalized communities, right? Black and brown communities. But you work specifically with pediatrics, which yeah. in some sense is another community that can be marginalized in some sense. So what's been going on with COVID and children? I know children, particularly pediatrics, maybe they're not getting the brunt like adults and elderly, but what's, tell so, me, or I mean, us. it depends. Cause I think a lot of times in the community, we tend to think about COVID as only being in regards to mortality and not thinking about the morbidity that comes along with COVID as well. So, I mean, you have to look at children in the sense of one, they can be spreaders. Now, obviously, when you look at things such as daycare, for instance, there is some research that shows that there hasn't been a widespread that has come from daycares or from schools of younger children. It seems to be more of the adolescents and young adults that you send to see that will spread the virus more. But the other thing we have to consider is like the multi-organ system impact of COVID as well, that it affects not only the heart the lungs, the kidneys, the brain, but this is usually coming after an infection. So the children are infected, and then after they've gone through that infection, whether it was asymptomatic or they only have mild symptoms, then you wind up seeing that inflammatory response that occurs after COVID has affected children, where they have been severely ill or have died. The good thing is a lot of them who are severely ill, we have been able to 
not keep them. We've been able to prevent fatalities. But the problem is, is that we don't know the long term effects of these things. You have kids that are going out right now who are still having like chronic fatigue symptoms or chronic issues with lungs or heart. And it's only been going really since about nine months now, since March. Well, not even I went to eight months because it's November. It's funny you mentioned that, actually. And before I go into my point, I want you to tell us where you are right now. Tell us what your position is. And then I'm going to go right into my point, because it's really amazing when you brought up that point. And I was thinking about something that we don't talk about, which is the long term effects. But yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So right now I'm in northern Jersey. I work for a large medical center out here. I am an academic pede, so I do program director as associate program director. I'm also a medical director for the pediatric clerkship. And then I'm a medical director for our clinic that serves underserved populations. So we don't take any private insurers. We only take public assistance insurance or charity care that we see. So out of all of those roles, I teach learners, whether they're medical students or residents, and then I also work in underserved communities. Majority of my communities I work with are either from the Latinx community, African-American community, Asian communities, and then also we have majority communities like white as well. Got you. That's dope. Yeah. And I'm really proud of your path. And we're going to talk about that because your path has been something that has been securitous. It's been outside of the box, <laughs> but it's been extremely successful, though. That's yeah. the key. We'll talk about that. But what I wanted to mention what you talked about is, is we oftentimes or a lot of people look at COVID as, all right, you're out for two weeks and then that's it. Yeah. But I think for me, I pay attention to the sports world. And what we're starting to see is you're starting to see people who, yeah, maybe they've had COVID for two weeks, but you can see their level of play not being up to par to how they were before. Right. So it's changing our mindset of this is not just a two week thing. You're healthy. You get better. You move on there are maybe some inflammatory reactions. There are some long-term sequela that's going on that and we just don't know about. We know inflammatory processes are associated with a lot of disease, right? Obesity, which is one of the things that I focus in on over my career, that's an inflammatory process. We know that's going to affect a lot of organ systems that come into play that is going to be part of the morbidity that we see. So when we talk about morbidity mortality, we're talking about whether somebody is having like long-term effects or sequelae from having a process, a disease process, a illness versus mortality where somebody actually dies because of it. And when you look on the news, when you look anywhere, you will see two numbers, the number of cases that has been present in either in the world or United States and the number of deaths or fatalities, but you don't see the number of morbidities. And that's what a lot of people don't get into their heads, because a lot of times people are like, well, I got it and I got through it. You know, Trump had it, got through it. But then what we don't see is what the morbidities that come along right. with this are. And that's the stuff that we still don't know to this day. So right. we're still frustrated with trying to figure out, OK, what's going to happen? I had a patient that came in not too long ago where the girl wound up having she was negative for the test when she had some symptoms. So. Assume that it was negative. Months later, now she's positive for antibodies, meaning that could have been when she got the infection or could have been a different time that she had got the infection that wasn't the COVID infection. It was something else. And now, you know, she's what was asymptomatic probably, but she had the infection with the antibodies. So she had an episode where she was having some shortness of breath while she was playing soccer. 
then the mom is looking at me like, yo, is this because of COVID? Is this because, you know, something else? And it's like, I don't know. Does this confer any type of defense? Right. We I don't know. know. And now adding the fact that we know for sure in the Supreme Court that's going to hear this after the election of the Affordable Care Act, i.e., will you also be able to have insurance or be insurable after you have... Is this a pre-existing condition? A pre-existing health condition. This is a pre-existing health condition. So there's a lot. So, you know, when we joke around about, like, this is a really big election. Like, there's a lot of things that are so on slate. Not just literally who's going to be in office, but literally how our health care is delivered. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I think one thing that people don't really think about is what the ACA does for entrepreneurs. It right. Does. Like the ability for people so to much. say that they want to leave their job and they may have diabetes or they may have something else exactly. and be able to say, well, I don't necessarily have to be attached to my job anymore. I can go on the general market yep. and start my new business, whatever it may be, and still get my pre-existing condition, quote unquote, covered. And I mean, that's the thing. Right. When you're thinking about even so, no one is saying the Affordable Care Act has been perfect right. by any stretch of imagination. There is no physician, regardless if you're the most liberal physicians or the most conservative physicians that say it's like, oh, yeah, the Affordable Care Act made my life better. In regards to a lot of different things in the Affordable Care Act, it actually has made things a little bit more tougher for us. But there are the benefits or the good things about it. I still stand behind, which is making sure that people who have pre-existing health conditions like myself can still be insured or being able to have coverage while you are on your parents' insurance up until the age of 26. Both of those things, I can tell you, affected me during my travels throughout this life. Because one, like I have shared with a lot of different people, I've made this public, that I have been type 2 diabetic since I was 16 years old, starting college at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. And having that pre-existing health condition affected me because of the fact that I was in medical school and by the time I got to medical school, by the time I was ending, I was going into my last year, I was hitting that age where I had to be off my parents' insurance. So when I was supposed to be off my mom's insurance, what wound up happening is, is that luckily the city of Detroit that she was working for at the time has said, he can stay on your health insurance, but you have to pay not only your portion of the health insurance, but you would have to pay the company's portion of the health insurance. So that came out to be about $600 a month that my mother had to pay just for me to stay on my health insurance because the school that I went to, Ohio University at the time said, you can be on our health insurance, but if you have a pre-existing health condition, you have to be on our health insurance, pay all the deductibles on your health insurance, but we will not cover that pre-existing health condition for up to one year. And then afterwards you can do it. So Anybody so you know exactly yeah. what it's like to almost go bankrupt or to have a financial huge liability exactly. prior to the ACA. And it just so happens that luckily my mother was able to afford it. But then that meant my mother had to take another job to be able to afford that. While she was going through cancer herself to make sure that I was being able to be taken care of while I was in medical school. This is the reason why I fight for it, because it's like not only do I see this with my patients, Hell, I was one of those patients. You know what I mean? It's real out here. There's, how can I say this without getting upset? There's something to be said about being empathetic to your patients or just when you go through something 
and you spend time when you're outside of that situation. But when you're in that situation, it forces you to look at things so differently. So just the fact that you mentioned, you know what it's like to try to sneak through and get that insurance, but then having your mom, God rest her soul, you know, have to do two jobs just to be able to keep you on the insurance. God forbid something happens, right? More than likely nothing will happen, but it's just a a very bad situation that, you know, you start to think about what it was like before the ACA. It's like a minefield almost. And I think the thing that I see when I hear people talk about people being lazy or people not wanting to do for others, and you're like, I saw what it was like. And the thing is, is that not only that, like I said before, my mom at the time when she was doing this was going through breast cancer treatment. I was in clinical rotations in medical school. And anybody that's gone through medical school can tell you it is hard to try to work, especially while doing clinicals. Maybe in your preclinical years, okay, you can sneak by with working a couple of hours here and there. But in your clinical years, you're working like a full-time job, more than a full-time job, still trying to study. and imagine like you are paying still somebody to do this. You're not getting paid for this. So I would have very little money. My mother always made sure every time she got paid, she gave me a $250 allowance, covered the $600 a month health insurance, and still took care of all the stuff that was at home for her bills having to go through all of her treatments because all of that stuff wasn't covered. So we're talking about an $800 swing. Almost. We're talking about an $850 swing in addition. And it wasn't like my mother. Yes, my mother had a degree, but my mother was <laughs> a mental health counselor and she took another job as a parking enforcement agent. So I meet her mate. And those are the two jobs. So she worked full time in the morning, went to sleep for a few hours and worked full time in the evening. And that's how she got by. And so it's like, I think about those things and I think about the sacrifice that had to be made for others. And it's like, how can I sit there and say that someone is using a system or someone is doing those different things? Because she wasn't a welfare queen. She wasn't any of those other type of things. She was raising a son who went on to be a physician, a black son to go on to be a physician. I appreciate you sharing that because I think that a lot of people need to hear that. Because I think it helps to personalize and kind of just humanize things, right? Like we need to know that story because it's a big deal what your mom was able to do. That seriously is a huge accomplishment that she was able to do. So I mean, it's it's crazy. And that's why I just, when I think about it, I'm surprised at myself and he knows me. He knows like, I'm surprised I didn't bust out, start crying because every time I talk about my mom, I actually actually almost You almost had me kind (laughs) of at the point where I was thinking about I was going to. You know, I think that now, because your position now outside of clinical, tell us your academic position now. So I'm a clinical associate professor. Clinical associate professor. Okay. So you work with residents also. Mm -hmm. All right. So now, you know, with this type of topic where we're going into what's going on with hazard pay, which we're going to go into in a second, is I want to set the stage for kind of your travels prior to where you ended up in Jersey. Yeah. Because it's part of the notion of docs outside the box is, you know, we're telling the story of people who are kind of embracing, you know, a non-traditional type of path. And that was you, you know? So let's hear about what happened after fellowship. Tell us about where you did your residency at, where you did your additional training, and then yeah, yeah. let's go from there. So I did my residency at Nationwide Children's Hospital, which That's I a big deal. absolutely love. Yeah. 
it's one of the top 10 children's hospitals in the country. That's top five, right? Not top five. We're close, but not top five. It's still top 10. I think it's like number eight or nine or something out of 209 programs. So, you know, nothing to buck at. Um, <laughs> you know, humble brag. Humble, humble brag, brag. You know what I mean? You. Humble brag. But okay. Humble flex. But, uh, <laughs> but no, so I wound up being named as chief president when I was there, which being the only second DO ever to be named chief president, that program it was a huge honor, a huge accomplishment. But at the time, like I said before, my mom was going through breast cancer. My father at the time was going through end-stage renal disease, so he needed to get a kidney transplant. It was just a lot on my family. And to be able to, at that time, to be able to say like, yeah, I want to take another year and not make money while I see my family struggling. And it's not like I said before, not like my parents do not have degrees, not like my parents do not have good jobs. But at the same time, we know that one of the number one reasons why most people go into bankruptcy is because of healthcare, because of the cost of healthcare. So I can't sit by and see this. So I said, you know what? I want to go out and start to work. And I made that decision really later on when I said, okay, maybe I don't have to do the chief year, which was a huge big deal. Because when you get named as chief, it's not one of those things where you're like, oh, thanks. I appreciate it. But you know, oh, well, like toodles. So I decided that I'm going to leave out of chief year and start looking for a job. So just to let people know, chief year is you finished your three years of training and then you do an additional administrative year. Additional administrative year, year, which is a huge deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. Out of 145 residents at that program, you would be one of the leaders and it helps you to set up for things that I'm doing now, right? With medical education, with administration. This is one of the ways a lot of people get into that. So I decided, okay, I'm not going to do chief year. This was short, late in the game. So I said, all right, I'm going to go and try to look for a job. Well, around later in your third year, around like the wintertime, when I started looking around December to February, there's not a whole heck of a lot of jobs out there anymore because a lot of people who knew they were going to go out and start working after residency have started putting out their resumes, their CVs, and starting to snatch up jobs. And there are four huge programs in the Detroit area, which I was considering going back to. So I wind up, when you are getting ready to leave out of residency, you get a whole bunch of headhunters sending you all these emails, throwing all of these big numbers out there. I mean, numbers that you didn't expect to make. And so I had a headhunter that sent me an email. Cash rules everything around me. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you hungry, right? The millennials you, don't you know like, nothing about that, yo. Eat. They don't know nothing about that. <laughs> if, if it's not Drake or if it's not some YNB belly or a little something or whatever, they, but sure. Wu-Tang Clan, but go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> but I mean, cream, <laughs> dollar dollar bill, y'all. Right. But nevertheless, I wound up calling, hitting up the headhunter, talking to the headhunter. The headhunter said, yeah, you know, like, what are places that you would be interested moving to or you have connections to? And so the only places I had connection to at the time was back home in Detroit, in Ohio, where I did my medical school and my residency, or Mississippi, where both sides of my family come from. They come from Mississippi. Even though both of my parents were born in Detroit, they were the first in my family that was born in Detroit. So that's part of, the, else. part of the great migration. Exactly. Everybody else came from either South Mississippi or the Delta, Mississippi, on my father's side. So when I told the headhunter that... That's the South. Yeah. <laughs> That's the South. I mean, anybody who watched P-Valley, you know, down in the paint, 
That's where my family, my father's side of the family is from that area. So anyway, so I wind up telling the headhunter, like, these are the three places. So she's like, Mississippi? Mississippi? You don't mind going to Mississippi? And we got openings there. Exactly. I was like, nah, all right, whatever, you know, cool, Mississippi. Because every time we used to go down there to hang out with family, you know, we'll be on my family's land. It was just like, you know, you was around your family. So it was a great place. I loved Mississippi as a child <laughs> on my family's land, <laughs> hanging with my family. So then, all right, I wind up getting, like, as soon as she said that, I would say, like, the next day or two, I got so many interests from different organizations in Mississippi, all of Mississippi, like a pediatrician. Hell yeah. Come on down. So many people are willing to throw money, fly me, fly my mom down, you know, like just check out everything. So I got to the point, so I remember me and my mom was having this conversation. I started getting offers that were coming in. And my mom was like, this feels like deal or no deal. Because it was like, every time it was it's like. suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> suitcase one. <laughs> suitcase two. Will you make this deal? Will you make this deal? I mean, it was like astronomical amount of money. Did any time out any red flags? Because, you know, they always say if they throw in a large amount of money at you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's usually a red flag. So the good thing is, is that I wasn't naive. I had tons and tons of mentors who, even one of our common mentors, Janine Hawk. Okay. Who I literally, like, I would ask about, I was on the phone with, like, help me out. I was on the phone with my program director. It's like, yo, what do you think? So then I wind up picking a job that I was like, okay, this is cool. It would be helping to start a pediatric program at this community hospital. It was in Jackson where majority of my family lives. It was a bigger city. It had a children's hospital there. I was like, okay, all of these things were just like adding up, right? So I had the contract. I had the contract read by a contract attorney. You never sign a contract without reading it with the attorney. Can you say that again? You never ever sign a contract without having it reviewed by an attorney. So I wind up having a contract review. Attorney said, big red flag right here, yo. Big red flag says, all of this money they're going to give you, you got to pay this back if you don't stay for three years. Okay, gotcha. There is no type of proration, no type of anything. So if you leave at two years, 11 months, and 29 days. As if you left after three years. If you left after three days. Three days, sorry, yeah. So you will have to pay back everything. And I'm talking about sign-on bonus. I'm talking about money going towards my student loans. I'm talking about relocation money. All of that, which was a good chunk of money, would have to be paid back. The young and naive, fresh out of residency, Ty says, I ain't going nowhere. I did residency for three years. I, I could do right. anything for three years. What else? So, so basically, they gave you a loan. Exactly. They gave you a loan. And then once that was a taxable loan. A taxable loan. Wow. Oh, yeah. So you got taxed on the front end and on the back. Okay. Yeah. So once you finish those three years, that loan basically just disappeared. It disappears. Yes. Did they make you sign a promissory note? No, they make you sign a con. Like, yeah, but I mean, it's part of the contract. Gotcha. You sign a part of the contract. So, I mean, the thing is, is that when you look at this, like I said before, you get taxed on the front end and on the back end. So imagine the amount of money that they say you're making, you're really only getting like about 40% of that because you're paying so much in taxes. (laughs) And then the other fun part about all of that is when you do take that money, 
it's not seen as a separate part of your income. It's seen as part of your income. So you move into a very large tax bracket that gets taxed because you're too naive to realize like, oh, I need tax shelter somewhere. So you have no tax shelter. You out in the wilderness. Just rain down on, rain down on me <laughs> with all the taxes. You ain't got no real estate. You <laughs> don't have. Ain't got no kids. Right. Ain't got nothing. So then I signed a contract. Everything is all said and done. Two weeks before I was supposed to move down there, they wound up saying, oh, we got a whole new plan for you. What we're going to do is instead of going into the practice with two family practice docs and building up your clientele getting used to everything because you're fresh out of residency and then moving into a practice when we get other people, we're going to put you in your own practice all by yourself. Everything will be set up for you. Everything will be done. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So it's too late now because I already signed a contract to say like, this sounds shady. But the only thing that was rest assured was the fact that the office was in an office suite that was right attached to the hospital. So at least if anything went wild on me with a patient, I have the ER right there that I can always shuttle the patient to, and I can work with the ER doc to help me with stabilizing a patient. So I went down there, and they said, everything is going to be set up. The very first day that you walk in, you'll start to see patients, blah, blah, blah. We have everything done, yada, yada, yada. I get down there. I know where this is going. He heard this. I got down there. I literally had. An empty office with three rooms, two tables, exam tables. One of them was broken down. A broken down desk that was in my office. Chairs and office manager that only did family medicine, not pediatrics, which is totally different. And a medical assistant that only did medical assistant work in an urgent care. Never in a primary care office, not even a family medicine office. So there was no charts, there was no otoscope or a thermoscope, you know, those thingies that you use to look in your ears and your eyes. There was no chart system, nothing. So fresh out of residency, I always tell everybody, this was my chief year. This was actually a chief year because I had to literally go on <laughs> AAP website, look up how to start a practice. Really? That's how I did it. I had no help. So I really lit, I went to Are you serious? AAP website. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, I went to the website, looked up how to start a practice, and I followed step by step. I created my own charting system. I had to order all of thermoscopes and otoscopes, which to order those for that practice was, you had to go to other practices, look in their storage units and see what stuff you can glean from that they had to be able to put into your practice. I literally took money, like if I was like a school teacher, like an elementary school teacher, bought a whole bunch of decorations to put on there to make it look like a pediatric office, had to look up things like CLIA to be able to understand like how to even run a lab. Because every time if I swab somebody for strep throat and I review it, I run a test and I interpret it and say like, okay, you're positive for strep throat. Seems simple enough, right? Swab you, put it in a little vial. It almost looks like if it's a pregnancy test. Look and see if it's positive or negative. Make sure the control is okay. And then say, okay, this is positive or this is negative. That, my friend, means that I am now a lab director. I am running a lab. So you have to get clear approval to do that. How do you do that? Ty found out because Ty had to go through all of that stuff to look it up. 
So that was my experience in Mississippi. Needless to say, I was also in Mississippi. So I was a new physician. I was a black physician. And yes, Mississippi has changed a lot of times, but there's a whole lot of stuff that didn't change. And I always tell everybody, like, people in Mississippi are polite, but they are not nice. A lot of people in Mississippi are not nice. Like, when somebody say, bless your heart, like, they will say the most outlandish things about you. But as long as I say, bless your heart, you good. It was just a rough go. And I wound up leaving early. <laughs> oh, so you left her. That's I what left I was, early. You left her. How many years did you last? I left after 15 months. I had to be about. And that meant that all of that money that I got, it became now my debt. So I'm leaving. I had made a lot of money. But I also now had a lot of debt coming with me. And I wound up going over to, I called up my mentor back in Nationwide Children's who happened to oversee all of the primary care clinics. And she said, you can always come back home. So I wound up going back to Nationwide, making legit almost half the amount of money that I was making in Mississippi with all of this debt coming back. Oh, man. How long did it take you to, to clear that debt? So let me tell you how good God is. Let me testify. <laughs> because the blessing about that is, and I always say, if you got to move, move. If you have a vision, I'm a firm believer that God gives you provision. Because I literally moved and I was like, I don't know how this is going to work, but I got to go. And I just prayed about it. And I was like, Lord, I got to go. And when I left and I wound up going to Nationwide, it just so happens that a couple of things. One, I was always really interested in weight management. And part of a new position that was being created was kind of like an in-kind fellowship where you would become a physician champion for weight management for a clinic. So you would undergo through training to learn how to do pediatric weight management, which I always wanted to do. So I didn't have to do a fellowship. I was still getting paid for it and getting the training. But then on top of that, I had to work a whole bunch of night shifts, which sucks. But the thing about night shifts are you get to charge more because you're working a premium shift. So you get to charge and say like, well, I'm seeing this patient in the evening, insurance company, give me my evening pay. So then that happened to be the next year was the first year they started giving bonuses to physicians. My bonus that I got from working all those night shifts was enough to pay back everything that I owe to Mississippi, plus pay off my mom's car. Oh, really? So I was oh, able man, nice. to pay okay, so this is a really nice car. ending. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I was able to pay off that debt to Mississippi. And that right there, my friend, is when I realized how valuable I was, how valuable my degree was, and how much I had to be about my business and why, like, Docs Outside the Box is not just a name. It's really a movement to realize you have so much more power than just being a physician taking care of patients, which is phenomenal already. I appreciate you telling that story because that's exactly what we're trying to get at with letting the residents know, as well as young attendings know, you know, sometimes you're chasing all, I'm not saying you were, but sometimes you go after these big salaries or <laughs> these big amounts and then it ends up being Pandora's box. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And the key thing is that you were able to, you know, pivot and you were able to find a way and it was uncomfortable for a bit, 
but you're able to pivot and find a way. And I think that that's a big lesson. And where I want to pivot to next is, is obviously you're very qualified at understanding business. You're very qualified at understanding what it's like to be a young attending. And obviously you work with residents right now, which puts me on this new thing that just came out from the New Yorker, this article that came out from the New Yorker, which is mainly resident run. And I'm actually pretty surprised that I didn't catch on to this earlier, uh-huh. but I think the reason I didn't catch on to this earlier is because me and Renee, we got sick with COVID and then we got, you know, really sick and then got busy working with other episodes and so forth. So this slipped under our radar. So earlier this month on October 8th, 2020, an article from the New Yorker came out and it said, what happened when medical residents asked for hazard pay? I don't know if you got a chance to see this, but you're in a residency program that decided to give hazard pay to residents, correct? Yeah, so we did give some hazard pay to residents who either volunteered or to work in COVID units or was redeployed to COVID units. So not everybody resident-wise would get the hazard pay if you didn't work with within COVID unit. Got you. Okay. All right. So that makes sense, right? I mean, because we already know like with just being a physician in general or being in medicine whatsoever, there's a sense that you're always very close to something that could get you sick or something that is very hazardous. But I think with this COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen things go above and beyond what normally we would really expect to be exposed to. So what this article is talking about, this article is documenting the saga, and I'm using it as a nice term, but basically what was going on, the shittery <laughs> that was. was going on at NYU, at Langone, I think Langone School of Medicine or Langone Health right across the river. But it basically starts off by highlighting one resident. His name is Nicholas Wanstat or Wardstat and talks about how he had asthma when he was growing up. And basically he became an emergency room physician, more emergency physician. And one of the things that he says is, you know, so much of your life is delayed a lot of it is due to finances. I wouldn't want this for my kids because of the stress, which actually from a resident perspective is pretty shocking that already at this point, this gentleman is a second year. He's already saying that he doesn't want his kids to go into medicine. Into medicine. A lot of people say that. <laughs> but I wouldn't expect someone this young to be going to be saying that. I would. Not with they. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's real. Hey, this is the truth. This is the truth. All right, I got you. So this article goes into talking about some of the ways in which people were redirected into different things. So at the point he was in a pediatric ER rotation, he got shifted to a COVID-19 respiratory unit and he would work about four 12-hour shifts per week, right? And then by April, everything kind of shifted. And then one thing that he noted and that the article noted is that some private hospitals began offering hazard pay. NYU Langone Health, a private nonprofit, multi-billion dollar hospital system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With dozens of locations in New York and a few in Florida did not. So while there were some, you know, you would think that this would be uniform, but it wasn't uniform. Yeah, it wasn't. And I mean, here's the takeaway part when you think about it. So this gets very tricky because a lot of people, a lot of hospital systems really put a tight lip on a lot of us. To not talk about those different things. No, they had a gag order. Gag order, excuse me, on this. Yeah. No, seriously. You could not talk about it. You can't talk about it. I mean, there is a lot of stuff that, you know, I don't even talk about because it's just like, I'm trying to keep my job. Uh, I don't want to. So, could I just don't get fired? 
Dr. Tyree moments. Exactly. <laughs> Don't like, get fired, Dr. Tyree, please. I Not on this show. You know this. I ain't say nothing about nobody. Y'all know where I work at. Uh, <laughs> look him up. Look him up. Nah, don't look me up. <laughs> but uh, for real, though, I mean, the thing is, is that let's think about it universally. Let's think about it in big terms. But, uh, so we have 45. Just make mention in the numerous amounts of interviews just this past week or two that physicians and hospital organizations are trying to promote COVID as being a cause of death or trying to inflate COVID rates in order for us to make money, which is such a huge slap in the face after so many of our colleagues literally have died. Oh, the AMA came out against what he said. Also. Yeah. I mean, literally died given their life. We have a mutual friend who stopped practicing medicine because they had a coworker who was working the opposite shift of them die in the hospital system that could barely get PPE, could barely protect their employees because we were beholden to take care of these patients. And it's not like you said before, we have known even before COVID, we know as both physicians that there are situations that we may have to walk into that we may potentially get infected or be in danger. And we still have made that dedication because of the fact that we both care about individuals, all physicians. I think it would be hard pressed to find a physician that don't truly care about patients. Let me ask you this question. Yeah. You think that if, let's say COVID-19 wasn't a respiratory issue, but COVID-19 was something in the bloodstream, right? Yeah. Let's say it was like that. HIV. Okay, like HIV. Let's say gloves were an issue. And let's say COVID had sequelae that required operating. Do you think it's right for surgeons to do operations without gloves? So, no, I wouldn't. That's what me and Renee talked about several weeks ago. And we got some backlash from that from yeah. some listeners, which is fine. We don't have an issue with that. But it's just like, I feel like what this article is saying, and we'll get further into it. And I think what you're saying also is that like, well, we accept a certain amount of hazard. But there were points where people did not have the protective equipment no. to treat people with COVID-19. And I guess the best way I can liken it is, is literally the same thing as operating without gloves. They were being forced to see patients without PPE to see yeah. patients and stuff. So, Or still not being able to follow the appropriate rules or have right. the ventilation or have the rooming or have the access to certain things. I mean, a lot of that stuff. And a lot of hospital systems were placing, I mean, there were people that were getting poor from all over, right? Not only residents, but also attendings, also nurses, also all kinds of individuals were getting poor who never did things. People who were in like pediatrics like me who were running like adult ICUs because they're like, well, you have some idea of ventilator. And it's like, yeah, but the vent settings the mills for a child are yeah. so polar opposite than the vent settings from an adult. I'm like, y'all, you don't want me to be a trauma surgeon for y'all. You just don't, because I ain't got that. I don't have that skill. And I would like him to say, a trauma surgeon taking care of a sick child and the pick you, you would not want that. What? What? <laughs> it's certain things. It's like a lawyer. It's like saying like, oh, I want this corporate attorney to help me go up against murder charges. It's like, you don't want that. So with that being said, thinking about this whole situation, when you have individuals, especially trainees, 
I liken it to thinking about the NCAA with college sports, not getting the amount of money that is being made from these college players, but being able to say, you know, like, oh, well, we're giving you free tuition. So I'm not trying to say it's about the money. The argument of you should be happy with you getting a college exactly. education, even though we're pulling you out exactly. to go to this event, to go to that event. You have practice at this time. What have you? You can't get a job. You can't do anything that's going to utilize your fame or fortune because that's illegal. But with that being said, that's not the full same as residents and learners who are going through this. The problem that lies is, is that you were seeing a lot of hospitals that were given out hazard pay or that were not given out hazard pay. Then you also had the same issue with a lot of hospital systems who were losing money, right? So a lot of hospital systems lost money because, especially in the PEDS world, PEDS world suffered tremendously. A lot of my colleagues from residency, we would talk a lot about this because it was very similar to us like H1N1. H1N1 even though it was not as severe by any means how COVID has been in terms of the length of the adverse effects that's been coming from this, also thinking about the numbers, but we saw how it hit the pediatric community and not necessarily the adult side. So in the peds world, we got slammed. That was the end of my residency. And I remember being in a hospital in residency when H1N1 hit, I was working overtime and I was getting paid a good amount. We we're getting paid a hundred dollars an hour working overtime during H1N1, which was a lot of freaking money at the time for a resident. And it was. For residents, I say. For residents, yeah. yeah. Getting paid a hundred dollars an hour. But I was working so many hours. I was working during a rotation and then I would come from 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. and work in the emergency department. And I would never forget, leaving out the emergency department, we had to break up the trauma base into rooms. So it made our ER about 50 beds. All 50 beds were full, and there were at least 95 people in the waiting room. And that's not including the triage rooms that we had at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I remember just like, I got to go. I can't stay because I have to be up in about four hours to go to my rotation. And they were like, yo, if you can just give us like one more hour, please, please. I'm like, yeah, I can't. But that's the type of thing that we had. Now imagine how COVID was. And it was so scary because you didn't know whether or not the PPE that you were using were still effective because a lot of people were getting sick even when they were using the PPE because they may have not known a proper donning or doffing or there was some type of issue where there wasn't enough ventilation. We know like if you give a breathing treatment, you aerosolize the virus. So now it becomes airborne where you need to have an N95 mask. Right. Come on, y'all. We've been there. So whether it's you're not challenged at work anymore, administration is pissing you off, or you just can't stand your partners anymore, you know when the writing is on the wall to leave your practice. Now, our sponsor, Provider Solutions and Development, has a team of experts ready to guide you through today's physician job landscape. With over 20 years of experience, they are committed to finding you the right team, the perfect setting, and the work you are meant to do. 
PSND in-house recruiters are not focused on quotas and they do not work on commission. That's what I'm talking about. Whether this is your moment to shine, pivot direction, discover something new, or just heck, just be a doc outside the box. Provider Solutions and Development has access to hundreds of opportunities across the country. Reach out today at psdrecruit.com forward slash docs outside the box. So people, in some regards, some people are being exposed inadvertently. And I just found here, actually, it says that by the end of July, NYU had realized operating losses of $1.4 billion across its hospitals, med school, according to the Sparks person. And it had received $570 million in government support, which covers less than half of the deficit. That's a big deal. The thing that is really interesting here about this one, though, is that it seems like there's a combination of people being gaslit. There's a combination of people not really understanding the losses and what that really means. Why was there losses? It was losses because people were scared to leave their house. They were scared to come to the hospital. They were scared to come to a clinic. And then also, we did not have people come to the clinic. We did a lot of virtual visits. Right. And so the virtual visits, you may or may not know, but we had to get that approved to bill it at the same level that it would be as if you came into the clinic, because that's typically wasn't never done before. So then we had to have like the Department of Health and Human Services and all those folks to be able to say like through Center of Medicaid Services to be able to say like, yo, you can use this as a billable. And it's still not billed at 100% of what it would build as if you were seen in person, but they build it at a level where it's like, okay, now at least we can have some form of revenue coming in. So even though we were taking care of a lot of sick patients from COVID, we weren't taking care of those other patients. And you weren't getting the revenue, the reimbursement, the way how you normally- Or the procedures like y'all or nothing. Yeah. So this is saying that by April, the residents had drafted a letter asking for hazard pay. Yeah. They also want to increase life and disability insurance, yeah. as well as protections for those who contract COVID-19. It says, as the demand placed on our hospital system skyrockets, our risk of hospital-acquired infection increases. This is what the letter said. It says, we are honored and willing to take on these greater clinical responsibilities. But along with this comes an increased risk for disability and death. And this letter was shared across trainees across the hospital system. It was initially by text message, which is a long way of, you know, like... It's a long text message. It's a long text message. <laughs> so they said that more than 500 physicians who were residents got this letter and they signed it, actually. And as with anything, you know, keeping a secret or keeping it you know, within the ranks of one level, someone else is going to find out. So it's exactly what happened. So the letter was making its way among the residents, among the fellows. And then the associate dean of GME, Stephen Abramson, got word of this as well as he's also not only the dean, but he's also the chair of the Department of Medicine. He got wind of this and then the people in the department seats started talking and they basically wrote a letter back to the residents saying, we know what y'all thinking about doing. Don't do it, basically. And just said it by saying, given the increasing financial uncertainties of all of our institutions, hazard pay is not feasible at this time, right? It says, we understood how hard these residents were working in very difficult circumstances. What we did in response was to give them our reasons, right? The problem, though, is, is that that's the letter that was sent to residents. 
Apparently, there was an email chain or a text chain that went behind the scenes that was between those in the C-suite, department chairs, and this got leaked to the residents. I'm not sure how they got hold of this, but basically, there were some things that said, I'll leave it to you like this. I read it myself, and they were pretty Yeah, I read it. Oh, you saw, right? On Reddit? So... (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but it's just like typical, like, what do you expect, right? So one portion of the letter said that now is the time to accept the hazards of caring for the sick rather than focusing on making a few extra dollars. And it says, I am not indifferent to your anxieties, but personally feel demanding hazard pay is not becoming of a compassionate and caring physician. So already at this point, you know, I'm feeling like there's condescension in this email, right? So that went crazy. I think that what you're finding now is you're seeing the difference between generations. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's exactly what I was going to say. This is a generational issue. This is such a generational issue. Oh, yeah. You find this all the time when you think about anything, right? So you start to think about anything that has to deal with medicine or like business or or just like life in general, especially, the more and more that we see such a stark contrast between folks who are still in C-suites that can be baby boomers or folks that are like Gen Xers or folks like our age who are Xennials, because it's like we don't fall necessarily in that Gen X phase of like the early 70s folks. But we also don't fall into the realm of like these millennials that are like 90s kids. Like we fall in this special area where, and when I say this, a lot of people usually argue, like I'm sure you hear some viewers argue about this too. But the reason why I say this is because we can appreciate this, especially if you have been in medicine. We both know what it's like to have did paper charts and also electronic medical records. And we can go in between the two with no problems. We know what it's like to type out an application for college and to do application online for residency or for med school. Given those examples, you see that we fit into the world of we understand both sides. But the problem that I feel that we run into is the way that we grew up in training, whether that was medical school or residency. It's very old school. This trend now just recently started around the time that we came in. Meaning like, think about it, duty hours. We literally were within like striking distance of the first year that duty hours even became a thing. Because before you didn't even have duty hours. You're right. You just worked. And then it's like, you know, things like feedback, for instance. To be able to receive feedback was... If somebody didn't say anything to you at the end of your shift, you was like, okay, I did good because nobody said anything because any feedback that was given was always negative. It was very rarely that it was going to be like, a, oh, this is a positive thing or this is how you can change things over. It was just like, this is how you effed up and this is how you're not going to do it again. That was the feedback that you got. Or we're not resigning you. Exactly. I mean, that was the feedback. So with that being said, and I don't think it's a bad thing by any means that People are learning their voices, meaning learners are learning their voices. They're learning and understanding and appreciating their value that they have to healthcare systems because they do have value to healthcare systems. We know this. 
they have value to the whole system of medicine. But also, I think that as sometimes you can see where when you learn your value, sometimes some people feel like you can go overboard or you have personality clashes. When we have personality clashes, you probably both mean the same thing or you probably could have more things in common than not. But then you wind up creating more. Of Ty, why are you being nice about this, Dr. Ty? I'm not being nice about it. I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm like, Dr. Ty is being, this is not how you, you really feel like this way about it. So let me tell you the reason why I say I feel this way about okay. this. It's because being in a position that I'm in, you have to learn how to become an advocate, even when it may not be something that you can fully understand. Okay, so basically, I'm going to run through this real quick and then we're going to jump yeah, into yeah. this because we might as well just jump into this. So basically, there was a bunch of back and forth of between course. administration, the C-suite, and the medical students. And this got out into the general public. They went back and forth. And eventually, the medical residents got their hazard pay. They got their hazard pay. The thing that's interesting is New York already, living in New York, the higher cost of living, they are probably one of the higher paid they are. residents just because of the higher cost of living there. D.C. is also getting paid a lot, too. Right. So their pay went up and it did. There was some provisions for, I think, disability and life insurance, so forth. You know, but the thing that I find really interesting, and I agree with you that there's a generational issue here is, here's my issue with this. Let me try to say this. This is where I want the residents and the young attendings to be listening to this stuff is, is that, listen, like you spent a significant amount of time in training doing something that the majority of the population, only less than 1% of the population can attempt to do, right? Which is something that's extremely hard. And one of the first lessons that you learn once you graduate from medical school and become a resident is basically, according to this, is basically what they're teaching them is shut up, submit, keep your head down, and, you know, that's it. And I have a major problem with that, right? Because I think that what we really should be doing is, particularly if you go to the websites, all they ever tout is things like, oh, well, we want our physicians to be leaders. We want our physicians to be thought leaders on certain things. And it's like, well, no, you don't. But do anybody really? Is this just only a physician thing? Right. So when you mentioned generational, I also think that this is a labor issue also. How we treat labor from sports, from NCAA to the students to how we treat, you know, what we consider to be essential workers with the majority of essential workers not being paid, you know, the salary that they get paid or the wages that they get paid are significantly lower than the rest of the population. Yes, but at the same time, here's, I get where you're coming from, but this is why I was saying, like, for real, for real, I don't think that I'm being nice about it or I'm being political about it or anything. Because of the fact that when you start to think about in both ways, one of the things that you have to always remember, too, is there's always two sides of a story and then there's the truth. Right. Exactly. So everybody always, not necessarily inflates, but everybody, especially in this country, and we're seeing this with COVID, because COVID is really magnifying a lot of issues that we have with this country. It shows how we have a lot of think about me, 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 me mentality. And so the reason why I bring that up is because if I'm looking at this from a standpoint of, and I'm taking away from this being a part of what my residency program of my hospital system do, I'm looking at this as being a total bystander who has understanding of what's going on. But I don't work for NYU. I don't know anything about what's going on with them. 
But from a bystander looking at that article and assuming that the New Yorker had put that as a, was the New Yorker, right? Yeah, it was the New Yorker. That the New Yorker did the most unbiased reporting, then this is why I say what I say. One is, yes, I agree. Workforce, physicians, trainees need to speak up and need to be able to be proactive for themselves. And they need to be able to say, like, not to think that I have to settle for whatever you throw my way. But the other thing that you need to also understand, too, is there is a price to pay. Everybody has somebody that they have to respond to. So just the same way those hospital organizations have to respond to the fact that they have to think about, all right, so if we increase this, what budget are we taking it away from? And I'm not trying to say that there is not money to be taken from other places. Everybody should have taken a fair cut. And I'm not saying that everybody did take a fair cut from them or whoever. I don't know. But I'm just saying, like, you have to think about it in so many different ways. And if you think about, if I give hazard pay to everybody when I know that now I have to pay more money for PPE because I am going to have to haggle and have to... Right, you're getting your equipment from... Right. You have to do the highest highest better. better. Right. 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 So if I know I got to pay for that, if I know I got to make sure that I'm still covering the dermatologist or the whoever who's not seeing patients because there is no patients that can come to them or the surgeon. I can't pay the surgeon because the surgeon's not doing surgeries because remember it used to be a time that you couldn't, unless it was a emergent surgery, if there was any type of elective surgeries, you couldn't get it done because there wasn't one enough COVID tests to go around. Two wasn't enough PPE. Three, it wasn't the resources because you had people who were taking care of other people. So it was like, You had a lot of things that usually are generators for revenue for a hospital system that you lost. But I still have to make sure that those people are getting covered too. So that extra little bit of money that I'm getting, I have to cover this person. I got to cover that. I got to cover this. I got to cover that. And I agree with you. So what you're saying basically is there's got to be a compromise on both ends. Like, for example, like maybe even asking at that moment. Well, I don't know. But I see what you're saying. It's got to be compromised. My point is this, and I agree with you. We can't say if there was enough PPE. Yeah. We don't know. So when in these type of situations, when I don't know exactly what was going on, what I tend to do is I look at the responses of people, yeah. right? I look at letters, emails, and I see like, hmm, this email, why is there so much condescension in this email? Or But for real though, I think the thing is, is that when you look at that, I look at that and I look at it as I get the privilege now of being on both sides of the spectrum. I know what it's like to be a trainee. I know what it's like to be an administrator. And I see the difference between the two. And it's like, I have seen where I'm like, y'all, you really asking for the world when it's like, I'm already doing this right. as a Right, the world trainee. is blowing up and exactly. so forth. But I do think that this was an opportunity to teach. It was. And now to encourage. That was true. Right, and that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Because I do think that, because you know me already, like, I do think, and this is a hot take, but I think it's the truth, that I think that residencies don't train residents for life, what life really is like outside of being a resident, because there's no duty hours. It's no duty hours. It's no, like, this is not my job. It's no, you know, oh, I only deal with this. I don't do that. And I think that's why I'm saying COVID magnified a lot of that, because it threw a lot of people into, like, 
This is what happens in a society where it's like, oh, everybody across the field gets treated equally or when everybody needs the resources, what happens? It's not just a selective few. And you're seeing this more and more. I also, like I said, I see and I have seen where it's like on both sides of the spectrum, you can have issues. I don't know because I'm looking at the New York and I'm like, it's two sides of the story and it's the truth. The one thing that I will say is, I don't know if it was me, I would think that you would try to have a mediator that will talk. But I also do know on both sides of the aisle, <laughs> both sides of the aisle, you know you having some kind of like, this is like me and you. When me and you talking about something, if I was talking about, you know, if we was talking about our spouses, you know, we would say stuff behind the scene, like, be like, this, blah, 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 blah. but at the same time, you ain't going to say that necessarily in your face. Right, exactly. So, that was one of those things where it was like it was a conversation that you were having amongst your colleagues that you thought, but it wound up blowing up. Those are one of those things. And I've had that happen in my experience in my travels where I'm like, man, I got to be careful about who I say things to necessarily or where I say it at. Because walls have ears and everybody know if you ever worked in a hospital, that hospital is so small and the walls got so many different ears. No, but the question is, though that I want to know is if they did not ask for hazard pay, would they have gotten it? Would they have gotten the provisions? So I don't, but no, I don't know if they would have. And I think that, and I didn't say that they were wrong for asking for it. But that's the next question I want to know is like, is the end worth the road travel? I don't know. I don't know if it was. I don't know if this really is going to change because at the end of the day, it's more than just the hazard pay. We're looking at this. Of course, that's a really good point. Because ultimately what COVID does is it puts a spotlight on really big inequities that are already pre-existing. Exactly. How we treat essential workers, exactly. how we treat labor, who's essential, who has to come to work, how much we pay them. Even in sports, we don't pay people a certain exactly. amount. Why do you have to come? If So that's why a conversation is needed. That's why, I mean, like you said, did the means justify the end? Yes, because now you're having conversations about later on because there's COVID, we will figure out a way to get through COVID. But you and I both know it's going to be something else that's going to come after COVID. So it's like it just what it is what it is. So I guess we both agree that there are two sides of this. I guess I'm always more on labor side. I'm always I'm not saying that you're not. I'm just saying that I'm always more on labor side. And, and I'm always more on the side of sometimes the squeaky wheel gets has the to, oil. Gets to get the oil. And I'm on that side. I do think that there, I do think there's something to be said about saying, well, you should just focus on being a compassionate doctor. And it's like, well, no, like you can be a compassionate doctor and you have to learn how to part of being a really great doctor and being able to connect with your patients is, of course, being an advocate for them. But how can you be an advocate for them if you don't know how to be an advocate for yourself? But I also that's why I agree that they were doing right by being an advocate for themselves. But I'll also agree, too, that you had to be able to say, like, yo. It's a time and a place. It's a, it, we're not even it's a time and a place. Yo, I'm being an advocate for myself. But anybody can tell you who does any type of negotiations. It's just that. It's a negotiation. You need to hear on both sides. And there's not going to be a, it's either my way or the highway. Because if that's the case, be willing for the consequences that come after it. And I'm not saying that you should never have a period where you walk away from something. It's the same way when I went looking for a car. I knew that this is the price I want to pay for this car. If you don't want to give me this price for this car, that's cool. If nobody wants to give me the price for the car, that's cool. Because guess what? I'm not going to get the car because I'm willing to take that. 
But I know that the ultimate end result of that will be either I get the car or I don't get the car. So if I so get y'all the real car, quick, so just to tell you, <laughs> Dr. Tyree is driving the bomb you know whip. First of all, so it ain't even that first of all, can I drive that car? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't the driver right now? Can I drive that? You know, I got to see your license registration and your insurance. <laughs> now you want hazard pay for that, right? I want like, hazard put pay, something bro. towards your, your, your insurance. <laughs> well, look, let's pivot because I think we beat this subject up. For yeah. me, I say kudos to the medical residents. True. I think it's important for them to learn how to fight for themselves. Nothing is perfect, but I say kudos to them. And this was a really interesting article. And it's just really interesting to get just the mindset of what was going down on ground zero. That's the part that's really fascinating yeah. about this was what was going on on ground zero. It's tough. It's really tough from residents who are depending on the people who are training them to give them more money. Technically, the AMA actually put out something that says that, yes, they are in favor of residents getting hazard pay provided everybody else within the hospital staff are getting hazard pay, hazard pay too. So that's but, everybody. I mean, that's, but that's the thing. You were seeing peace places are... The nurses were getting hazard pay, but the residents or the physicians wasn't. And I'm not trying to say that the residents or physicians deserve to get hazard pay and no one else does. Right, right, right. All right. Well, look, let's take a big pivot right now. Let's okay. pivot into something a little bit more fun. So obviously, a lot of this stuff happened on social media, right? A lot of stuff happened on social media. So before we jump into this, though, why don't you tell the public, tell everybody who's listening what you do obviously outside of clinical medicine, there's something that you're doing that's augmenting the way in which you are helping pediatric patients. Tell us about that. So one of the things that I do, it grew out of my work as a pediatric weight management specialist, is the fact that I was getting very frustrated. And I realized that a lot of resources that my patients didn't have was affecting the way that they were able to combat obesity. And so one of the things I created was a program called Hip Hop with a Doc. And so Hip Hop with a Doc came about. Hip Hop with a Doc. Hip Hop with a Doc. If you want to look me up on social media, it's at Dr. Ty, T-Y-E, Hip Hop Dance Doc. So I'm on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. <laughs> um, so how you just dropped your resume, your social media resume I right sure there? I did. No, but I mean, I do it not with any intention. It never was meant to be something that was going to be more than just doing this for my patients, being able to encourage folks to be able to get up and move and providing a resource for them. And truthfully, it was a way to be able to kind of to try to drag them into clinic, because what would happen is, is that anybody who does weight management can tell you there's a huge no-show rate. And so you would have a lot of patients that would make appointments, but then they wouldn't show up. One of the things I would do to be able to help encourage patients to show up is by saying, like, hey, I'm going to bribe you. If you come to your appointments, then I will let you come into this hip hop class for free that I'm leading, that it's a dance class. You have an area to be able to do physical activity in. You can learn these routines. I would do the routines, teach you how to do the routines. Here's the music that was kid-friendly music to be able to say, like, you can do these routines at say, home. So it is it's not like the Funky Watuse. It ain't no Funky Watuse. Okay, got you, got you. Funky, funky Watuse. No. All right, so it's kid-friendly. I'm looking at the video right now. Okay. So I'm teaching these kids how to do hip-hop, right? What wound up happening is it wound up 
So the American Osteopathic Association. The kids can move better than the parents, actually. The kids always move a lot better than the parents. Right. So the funny thing is, I wind up getting the opportunity to be able to do my hip hop routines in front of the Fact, American. I get it. <laughs> the American Osteopathic Association at our, our national conference, OMED. So when I did it, I actually got a chance to do it in the middle of the exhibit hall, which the exhibit hall is a huge gathering with a whole bunch of docs in. And I played French Montana pop that in the middle of the American Osteopathic Association conference. Which is extremely conservative. Because anything, what is really the AMA or OAOA, French Montana? And right. it started off with a small group of about 25 people. <laughs> After I finished the routine, I looked around. The entire exhibit hall, including the exhibitors, were all dancing and doing the routines with me. And so it wind up you got getting video. This is on something. You're on something. It yeah. got put on YouTube. And it got over 30,000 likes on YouTube. So I was like, You oh, went viral. Crap. Yeah. And so then it was like I wound up getting interviews with XM Radio, interviews on uh, magazines and newspapers and stuff. And I wind up just still applying it. People just kept asking me, hey, will you dance? Will you dance? Will you dance? And I'm not the best dancer by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, really? I'm so, I mean, like, I'm not the best dancer, but I can keep a groove. I can teach it. I do what I do. So I'm just saying, I do what I do. See, okay, so I was going, because <laughs> I know, I mean, I'm not the best dancer, but I'm not the worst dancer by any means, by any stretch of imagination. All right, because, th- I mean, what you're doing is phenomenal. And, you know, there's been more doctors who have been dancing. Copycats. On, no, just on, oh, <laughs> that's fired. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> So, I, because I, I, I got to know this, man, because, I mean, we playing this too vanilla, right? <laughs> we playing this too vanilla. Why are you being vanilla with this, I'm gonna keep a, I'm going to keep it gangster. Right? I'm keeping it gangster. So, there are doctors on social media right now, on TikTok, who are dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who are doing their thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to know, because I've seen you move. I know you got the moves. I want to know, like, what do you think of some of these docs? Like, you know, we, we had, let, let's just start calling people out. Like, we had... <laughs> We had Dr. Jason Campbell on, the TikTok doc on. His moves are pretty good. But what say you, yo? I mean, I mean I'm going to play one of his videos right now. What do you think? His moves are good. I'm not going to diss him. Besides the fact that he had an Ohio State shirt on. So not only is it dancing beef, it's a school beef, too. I mean, like, it's Ohio State. You know what I can say. But with that being said, though, I mean, his moves are good, though. But I mean, I think I could take him, though. I, I know Ooh, I could take him. Dr. You know what I'm Jason saying? Dr. Jason Campbell, you listening, yo? Like, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on. Let me show you some more moves real quick. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let me see. Let me see. He's good. He's good. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I mean, but the thing is I that, love it. But beef. the thing is that beef. he's dancing, but is he teaching others how to dance? I want to see you teach it. Because I'm looking at his students that he's teaching, like the other docs that he's helping try to teach dance. And I'm just like, they... they all right, you listen, listen, him, listen. So Dr. Jason Campbell's been on this show. So listen up, listen clear. Everyone, listen <laughs> clear. I'm calling it out right now. So listen, we are calling out Dr. Jason Campbell right now. What you gonna do? What you so gonna do? I got do? Dr. Tyree Winters right here. He's saying I'm that- saying, oh, dance he said, off for charity. If you down for it, I'm down for it. Dance off for charity. On docs outside the box. I mean, Dr. that's how we keeping it good. Are we keeping it gangster? Dr. Jason Campbell, I know you didn't, nobody put you up on it, but now you know. 
what you about to do? What you about to do? Is there going to be some type of, can y'all get a dance off where, you know, it's for charity and stuff? I'm just saying, like, you know, like, what we doing? What we doing? We going to do some old Reebok? What's that dance move where you're like this? And stuff? Show us that dance move. Hold up. Let's, let's bring the camera back. Show us, what is that dance move? You got space. Yo. Go ahead. Show us that dance move. Yo, 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 yo. We yo. got space. Go ahead, man. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so, yo, for real, though, it's this dance. It's this, uh, I forgot, it's, it's like a Southeastern dance. Like, it's this, uh, yo, let me find the music real quick, because you got to see this dance. <laughs> It's the most hilarious thing ever. You think he's going to, first of all, while you're finding the music, do you think, I mean, look at him right there, though. You think he's going to step up? You think he's going to say something? Dr. Jason Campbell, you have to say something. Unless you're scared. Dr. Jason Campbell, you just got called on Docs outside the box. You got to do something. All right, so show us that move real quick. (laughs) So, yeah. So I did this video on it, right? So you gotta see this. You gotta so this, this is thing. like South America. This is it's this is like, South American dance. It's like this South Asian dance. South Asian. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry. So like, if I play the music real quick, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna play the video of me doing that. <laughs> Damn, you killing it, man. Yeah, here, here's the video of me. Yeah. <laughs> I think I wrote to him. I was like, I think he needs verset for that. Are you having a seizure, man? Yo. So I'm down. I'm down. I'm going to put my money on Dr. Jason Campbell. That's what we're doing now? <laughs> you going to disrespect me like this? You going to disrespect me? I'm putting my you money on... you disrespecting family. That's true. You don't disrespect family. All right. Well, look. <laughs> listen. So it all... But we joking, though. Dr. Jason Campbell's doing some Dr. great Dr. Jason things. Campbell's doing amazing stuff, brother. But Shout I still, out to I you. still want to see... But I I'm still, still calling you out for charity. But the funny thing is, do you even know to use TikTok? Brother, I just showed you the TikTok video. Oh, that was TikTok. That, that was, was Instagram. TikTok. No, that's TikTok, brother. <laughs> All right. So it's right there. You heard that. If I if I had sound effects, I would do, you know, new docs outside the box. New beast, new beast. All right. So look, let's do our last pivot. Our last pivot. Our last pivot. So look, for me, and I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but for me, I don't know, like growing up, music was really... Music is always perfect. was always big in my life. And it's not that like, like I was a musician or anything like that, but I can literally remember when a certain song was played, I can tell you exactly what part of like New York I was in. Because I grew up in Queens and then from there we moved to Irvington, New Jersey. So I can tell you like, oh yeah, when this song came out, like George Michael came out, Faith, I was like moving from New York to New Jersey. I remember it was on the soundtrack for, you know, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Because I just remember all these different things and stuff. So music is really, really, really big, really big in my life. And I almost kind of like, if I ever wanted to have like an autobiography or a biography of me or a movie of me, like literally what I would have is like each chapter would be played by certain music in the background. So it can tell people, okay, this song came out, it's the 80s, it's like 84, and this is what's going on or what have you. So for me, like, I feel like there's like a soundtrack of my life, right? So I want to ask you like, for you, if there was a music soundtrack for your life, okay. what are two songs that would be a part of that soundtrack and why? Uh, I would probably have to say the first song is going to be... That song you just played? No. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> I don't know who made that song because it's in some foreign language that I don't even know. It's hot, though. But it's hot. It's hot. No, um, the first song that I would probably say is Home by uh, 
Donna Ross and, or Stephanie Mills, whoever, which one, is from the Wiz soundtrack. And the reason why I always say... Is Diana Ross. Yeah. Well, Diana Ross initially sung it. It was part of the Wiz soundtrack. Well, no, it was actually Stephanie Mills because it was a play, Broadway play. Got you. Okay. Yeah. But the reason why I always... It's one of my favorite songs of all time. And the thing that I love about it is it relates so much to my life when I think about home. Anybody who knows me know I represent Detroit to the day I die. A lot of people try to sleep on Detroit. A lot of people try to talk bad about Detroit. But the thing is, Detroit raised me with so much that I can't explain to you or express to you because it showed me the different diaspora of Blacks that I've come across. Like, I mean, growing up around Black folks who, you know, had parents, both parents went to college and you know, you had other family members who went to college versus you had other Black folks who were, like, so freaking well-to-do, it was ridiculous. Versus you had other Black folks who were, you know, on the poor of the poor. But we all came together, especially the high school, Cast Tech, where I went to, which is another big thing that I always represent about. To the fact of thinking about home. Jamel Hill from, went to Cast? No, she didn't. Okay. She didn't, but she wound up going to Michigan State. But we have know a lot of people in common. People that went to cast. Big Sean went to cast. Diana Ross went to cast. Not liking that most recent album by really? Big Sean. That's my joint. I love that. Detroit too. The other one, <laughs> like, is so many people that went to cast. Like, I mean, David Allen Greer, Lily Tomlin, the first black female dean of any medical college. Barbara Ross Lee went to cast. It's just like it's huge. Then you think about. Home also in the sense of when you think about my security, the things that I love most. Family means so much to me, everything. It's just home. It's just like that. And okay. then also when you think about heaven, like, you know, that's, my, that's the ultimate home. And so I think about that. So that's why I would say that's the soundtrack. That would be one of the songs for Soundtrack of My Life. The other song that I will probably have to say is from my favorite singer of all times. I know it's like, I talk about hip-hop, but I, I'm not going to even say a hip-hop song. I got to have a third song, so I can't have a third song. No, I'm going to have a third song. So the, you see how they so, do me? So, Dr. Jason Campbell, I know he's going to win. <laughs> so, second song uh, from my ultimate favorite singer, Mary J. Blige, My Life. Dog. I yeah, mean... That's an amazing song. That song right there... That's a song for either breakups. That's a song yo, if you don't, if you yo, don't get into school, if you get fired from job. In, the, in <laughs> high school, I was like, uh, I had to be a sophomore or a junior high school. It's going through a break. I remember that album. I played that album out in my life. Just that whole, that whole freaking, that whole album was my soundtrack in my life. Especially in high school. Just going through a whole bunch of stuff. Discovering a whole bunch of stuff about myself. And then my third song, my third, I just have to put it out there, is uh, One More Chance by Biggie, because he's like my, my favorite rapper. And uh, I'm just, it's just such a fly-ass song. That so I let me ask you a question. How is it that you're from Detroit, right? Yeah, yeah. And your favorite rapper it's is from, from New York, Brooklyn. How did that go over? Well, you know what? Most, if you think about it, the, the I thought most... you were going to say like Royce the 5'9 or something like that? Or? No, 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 no. Most of the, if you... Growing up time, in the 90s. It was New York. Growing up in the 90s, majority of rap that was played in Detroit was either from this area or it was from the South. And why I speed up music so much? The thing you is, think I didn't know that? House music <laughs> is the ish. 
Like, you are not from Detroit if you do not like house music. If you don't like what we call booty music. So it was like, uh-oh, rick it, rick it, uh-oh, or scrub the ground, eh, scrub the ground. That's the type of music that I grew up on. Uncle Luke, like, you know, like, there you go. Pop, pop. <laughs> <laughs> Another Docs Outside the Box exclusive. There you go. I mean, you got, you have to be able to pop it. Like, if you can't pop it, I can't dance to it. <laughs> and apparently the majority of people in Detroit can't either. So listen, doc, Dr. Ty, this was an awesome, awesome conversation. I, first of all, I just want to thank you for being the first guest to come down here. Oh, my pleasure. With me brother. in my basement. I know <clears throat> we still got some work to do in here, but just for you to come down here and talk with me about this and one, share your story about, you know, the bumps and the potholes that you went through after residency to where you are now. You know, I appreciate it. And that's good. Do it now. I really, really appreciate this. And I think that the residents can learn from this. I think young attendees can learn from this. And I also think that, you know, the key things that we can learn from this whole perspective is, is that if you live in your truth, that you'll always find happiness, right? Like, I think sometimes it's never like a perfect path, but if you live in your truth, if you, you know, realize that there are ways in which you can do things, you're going to make a mistake. It's okay you know, just keep moving forward and go from there. And I think definitely the story from Mississippi and obviously the story about your mother um, is extremely inspiring and touching. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Thank you for coming on Docs Outside the Box and doing another topic outside the box with us. Man. Yo, I appreciate you all. Thank you so much. And it, this has been a pleasure. Please, if you don't already, tell your friends about Docs Outside the Box and that Dr. Ty, Hip Hop Dance Doc. Make sure you follow him. Make sure you follow him, guys. Yo, All for right. real. All right, y'all.